This week on No Border, No Country, a new early study shows cities and counties around the United States are spending over $66 million to give immigration lawbreakers free lawyers in immigration court. Welcome to No Border, No Country. My name is Brian Lonergan. I'm joined by Judge Matt O'Brien. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you, Brian? Fantastic. So we had an investigation put out by Early recently that talked about legal representation for people facing possible deportation. Tell us about the details there. Sure. So this is a follow-up to uh, an earlier study that Early did of the uh, Vera Institute of Justice, which is an extremely radical left-leaning anti-borders organization. Uh, and one of their plans is to have a universal representation for uh, foreigners who are in immigration court uh, <laughs> attempting to fight deportation. Now, it, this is problematic because deportation proceedings are civil, uh, as most people who watch Law and Order know. Uh, people who are indigent, who can't afford an attorney, who are in a criminal proceeding are entitled to a free lawyer. That's because as a matter of constitutional law, that person has fundamental interests at stake, which are their life and liberty because uh, as a result of a criminal charge, you can wind up being imprisoned or executed. That's not true in civil proceedings. The purpose of civil proceedings is to restore what in legal terms is called the status quo ante. Uh, which is a fancy way of saying the situation that existed before. So civil proceedings are supposed to right wrongs when somebody has breached an obligation to someone else. And you don't get a free attorney in civil proceedings. Yet, for some reason, the Vera Institute of Justice believes that it would be a good idea to take U.S. taxpayer money and spend it giving foreign lawbreakers free attorneys so that they can fight deportation. Don't you think an element of this is, is the fact that the anti-borders movement tries to blur that distinction you just said, where we say in a civil matter you're not entitled to a government-paid lawyer, but yet in a criminal one you are. They're trying to blur this into, well, it's, it's only fair that you get legal representation. They don't even want to hear about criminal versus civil, right? Yeah, they, they're trying to turn this into a civil rights issue, but it's not. You don't have a civil right to be in the United States if you're a foreign yeah. national. And so the best way to think of this is it, it's similar to an eviction proceeding. Uh, if you don't pay the rent on a property that you are renting, uh, you don't have any right to remain there. So if you have a lease, the lease says it's $1,500 a month and you pay bupkis, then eventually you're going to wind up being evicted. The landlord calls the sheriff. The sheriff serves you with papers. The court tells you you got 30 days to get out. It's exactly the same situation with deportation. These are people who are in the United States that don't have any right to be here, and the court is simply telling them, listen, you have to go home to the place where you actually have full rights of citizenship. And the, you know, the Supreme Court has holdings on this, go back to 1892-93 in that area. One of them is EQV United States, uh, where the Supreme Court remarked that as a matter of international law and national sovereignty, independent countries have the right to determine who can enter their dominions, how long they can stay, and under what conditions. They also have an inherent right to put people out when they fail to comply with those conditions. And both ECU and a later case called Fang Yu Ting 
uh, found, or it might have been an earlier case, I'm not sure which, they were decided around the same time, but Fang Yuting and Ekyu both said deportation is not a, a form of punishment. What it is, is it's a simple legal procedure to restore things to the correct situation, meaning the person that has no right to be here is no longer here, and they are returned to a place where they have a right to be. Now, on this side of the country, there's this um, anti-borders, pro-illegal immigration movement. There's a lot of shadowy groups that, that do a lot of things that most people don't know about. G going back to the first investigation and then this one, who is this Vera Institute? What, what do we know about them? Well, this is a, uh, is a group, it's uh, named Vera after the mother of one of the founders who was a, uh, a civil rights activist. And uh, they are uh, totally anti any kind of law enforcement. Uh, I'm sure they were advocates of defund the police. But their more direct thing is that they believe that the United States justice system creates a, a mass incarceration problem and that the immigration system has now become part of that. It's what they refer to as crimigration, uh, which is very unwieldy and awkward uh, portmanteau of two words. And uh, so they believe that nobody who is an immigrant should be detained because, well, they're just people that want to be here. But of course, the problem with that is if they're uninvited guests, they don't have any authorization to be here. And the only way you can be here legally in the United States is if you are born here as a US citizen, uh, you're a U.S. national from an affiliated independent republic like Puerto Rico or uh, American Samoa, or you have the authorization of the government to be here as a foreigner. If you don't get that, you're a unlawful migrant, or that IA word that we don't like to say on YouTube, and uh, you're not allowed to be here. And the fact is the government has an unfettered right uh, to put you out. And due process, quite frankly, doesn't even require that, that you be given an extensive hearing in immigration proceedings. We do actually engage in what's called administrative removal of people who are caught near the border where they're put out without any kind of a hearing. So th this is, as you pointed out before, an attempt to kind of link this to criminal proceedings and portray the migrants who are being removed as victims rather than the lawbreakers that they actually are. Now, in the original investigation, and again, in this one, we learned sort of how Vera operates. Talk a little bit about how do they do this? How do they get in with these local governments, and how do they get these programs up and running? Sure. Well, th this sort of ties into another investigation we did where we found that the uh, county legislators in Arlington were uh, essentially colluding with uh, anti-borders advocates in order to pass the Arlington Trust Act, uh, which was an act that prohibited Arlington, Virginia law enforcement from cooperating with immigration authorities. Vera follows a similar model. They go in and they build relationships with anti-borders, pro-illegal alien organizations. Then they go and they start to build relationships with local politicians that support that agenda. They then give grants for the first year of these programs in order to pay for uh, attorneys for these foreign nationals who are in immigration proceedings. After the first year, they expect these communities to kick in 100% with taxpayer money. And here's the problem, as we all know, politics is largely a game of what are you gonna do for me, like out of a mafia movie. And, and a lot of politics in the United States is based on pork and, and based on what individual politicians can give to constituents. 
Now, you got to be wondering if you're listening to this, how are these people constituents because they can't vote? But I think the perception, particularly among a lot of, uh, of Democrat Party politicians, is that these people are eventually going to become voters. If there's a path to citizenship, they may at some point vote, and they're likely to vote Democrat, particularly if the Democrats have delivered them things, uh, like, for instance, the lawyer that allows them to stay in the United States. Um, and this is not entirely a Democrat thing. The fact is that there are Republicans that sign on to harebrained schemes like this. Uh, nobody's exactly sure why, but, but they do. Um, I, I think it's largely for the same reason that the Democrats buy into it, because it's this perception that here's something that I can do to, for lack of a better term, purchase votes in a figurative sense. Um, so Vera moves in, shells out all this money, gets everyone addicted to these programs as a public benefit, and then once they're up and running, when it's hard to say to people, hey, we don't have the money to fund this, we're going to take this away, Vera withdraws the money and then attempts to force these municipalities and counties to use money from the public fisc, American taxpayers' tax dollars, to pay for lawyers, for people who don't have any right to be here in the first place, or in some cases, people who were authorized to be here but then wore out their welcome by breaking our laws and rendering themselves subject to deportation. Now, their reach goes beyond just these local jurisdictions. Did they not get a significant grant from the Biden administration last year? Oh, they've got numerous grants from the Biden administration, from the Obama administration. It wouldn't surprise me to find if they had gotten grants in the past uh, from Republican administrations. Uh, the fact is that the government, in the name of fairness and due process, has a lot of programs uh, that provide legal counsel to people or that provide attorneys at courts uh, to be duty attorneys for the day. When I was an immigration judge, the immigration court spends all, the, the function of the immigration court is to adjudicate immigration cases by applying the law to the facts and rendering decision. And yet there's a whole division at the immigration court that does nothing but fund and implement programs to make sure that people appearing before the immigration court have quote-unquote adequate legal counsel and adequate access to legal advice. Now, of course, if you're an American who is in an eviction proceeding or you get a billing dispute with Sears over the, you know, Craftsman washing machine or Kenmore appliance or whatever it is that you purchased, nobody's going to provide you with a free lawyer. So, as, as a hard-working American, you have to ask, why is it that we're doing this? These, in a lot of cases, are people that have been in the country for all of two minutes, unlawfully so. We didn't invite them here, and yet you have taxpayer money being spent on attorneys for them. Now, there's nothing that stops any of these people from getting their own attorney, and there are plenty, let me tell you, when I was an immigration judge, the, these groups drove me nuts, but there are plenty of groups that give free lawyers to anyone who asks just because they're a migrant. So why are we institutionalizing this as something that American taxpayers have to fit the bill for? The, uh, the, the, the case that gave rise to free counsel uh, in uh, criminal proceedings was called Gideon v. Wainwright, and it was decided in the 1960s. So the Republic had been up and running for a century and a half plus before anybody decided that indigent criminal defendants were entitled to a free attorney. And 
uh, a lot of legal scholars would say that that was an over-reading of the Constitution and instance of judicial activism. There's at least an argument in favor of that to say that people who don't have an attorney who are being pursued by the state on a criminal charge have a, 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 a right to legal advice. That, that can be debated. But this is absurd. Why do Americans need to pay for attorneys for foreign nationals who don't have any permission to be here and who we didn't invite? Well, that's the other maddening aspect of, of the state of our immigration system right now because, as you know, even though this current administration has gutted CBP, gutted Border Patrol, gutted ICE, we're still committing a massive amount of resources to those agencies. Whether they're using them in the right way or not is another question. But what we have now is a situation where we're, we're pushing billions of dollars to those enforcement agencies. And at the same time, we're pushing taxpayer money to groups to keep them there. So we're on one hand, we're trying to keep them out ostensibly. And on the other hand, we're paying lawyers to keep them in. Yeah, it, it, it's absurd. I mean, it's equally absurd in the criminal context if you stop and look at it. I mean, when you put it the way you did, why is New York City paying for the New York City Police Department to apprehend criminals and district attorneys to prosecute them, only to turn around and pay for attorneys to try and keep these people out of jail? But, as I said before, there is an aspect of due process to it in the criminal context because you could potentially wind up going to prison for life or wind up... Uh, being executed. But when it, it comes to immigration, this is a, an absolute brand new level of absurdity because what happens? Most of these people would be returned to the country they came from. Most of them live there for, you know, 15, 20, 30, 35, 40 years uh, and didn't have a major problem with it until they decided to come to the United States. But then here's the other aspect of this. A lot of these people, as soon as they get some kind of lawful status that allows them to depart and return to the United States without legal consequence, are going to go home and visit. So clearly these places are not as terrible as the anti-borders advocates would have you believe. A lot of this is America is responsible for all the problems in the world. All of these other places are terrible, therefore we have some kind of an obligation to let these people into the United States. But that's, that's a crock. Uh, a lot of the places that these folks are coming from are places that Americans regularly go on vacation. So just a level of hypocrisy and a logic that is present in these situations and that is present in these programs is, is frankly hard to describe. But the, the bottom line is that we are in a situation where schools don't have enough money, police departments don't have enough money, the roads are falling apart, public infrastructure is a mess. We don't have public transportation that works. So why are we spending $66 million of taxpayer money to keep uninvited lawbreakers in the United States? Makes no sense, does it? None at all. We'll be right back. I'm Tom Holman. The Biden administration is reversing America's progress on immigration, reversing ICE's ability to deport criminal illegal aliens, reversing job protections for Americans, and construction of the wall. That's why I've joined Early, the Immigration Reform Law Institute. Early uses the courts to stop bad immigration policies. Join me. Support Early at Early.org. Help win the immigration fight in the courtroom. Paid for by the Immigration Reform Law Institute. And we're back. Matt, I wanted to touch again on the, the money aspect of what you 
discovered there? Because we, we touched on it in the first segment. You had mentioned that they've been getting grants from several administrations. The first investigation into Vera from early showed they had a $172 million grant in 2022. Mm -hmm. So these groups like to portray themselves as these threadbare organizations with these committed pro bono lawyers just full of compassion and that's what they run on. This is a slick operation. Th these are very well-funded organizations, aren't they? Extremely well-funded organizations. There's not a whole lot of difference between the Vera Institute and the typical Beltway bandits that are operating inside the Beltway making money off of federal government contracts. I mean, the fact is that the federal government is a deep well and uh, donations only go so far. Donations tend to be cyclical, as we well know here at Early. Um, you know, they change with the season, um, they change with the, uh, the economic climate, the political climate, and so a sure way to get cash for organizations like this is to get government or state contracts, uh, which Vera indeed does. And I mean, when you're talking about a hundred and, you know, X number of million dollar government contract, you know, this is a nonprofit organization, but to think that they're not making money off of these contracts is absolutely absurd. So they have, they have deep coffers, and as we have seen, the plan is not to use the money that Vera has acquired. Uh, the plan is to use taxpayer money, and Vera's money is seed money. So those grants go for a short period of time, and then they move on, and Vera has convinced these local jurisdictions to spend taxpayer money. And, you know, you have to ask questions. I grew up in Lynn, Massachusetts, all right? For, for most of the time that I was there, it, it was an, an immigrant town. Uh, it still is. Uh, it's a mill town. General Electric is the major industry there. At one point in time, there was an Arelco plant. Um, marshmallow fluff that everybody knows from peanut butter fluff sandwiches is manufactured there. Um, as a matter of fact, I think it's the only company in the world that, that, that makes this stuff. And, uh, it, you know, for a significant portion of the time that I was going to school, the school buildings were falling down around our ears. The, the, the buses were ancient. Uh, a lot of the roads, it's New England, so you get frosties every winter that, that uh, tear up the pavement. Um, you know, why a, a, a town like that uh, would want to get involved in a program like this, I don't know. Now, Lynn, to my knowledge, was not one of the Vera Institute of Justice programs. I'm just using it as an example because I grew up there and I know it well. Um, but when you have basic services that government is supposed to be providing to the citizens that live in the town where you are from, many of whom are long-term citizens of the United States, whether they were born here or were immigrants, many of whom are veterans that have served the country, many of whom are not veterans who have served the country working as police officers, firefighters, first responders, nurses. Why are you going to spend money that you should be spending to make the buses run on time and make the public school functions trying to keep uninvited foreign nationals in the United States? It, it, it's, I mean, it, just from a practical standpoint as a city or county legislator, what is the, the policy reason for spending this money? And the answer is there isn't one. It's like I said before, it's an attempt to try and, and pander to a perceived constituency that's tied to these foreign nationals. The other thing is that for people who may not live anywhere near Washington, D.C. or don't deal in the ebb and flow of this town, it, it's easy to get lost in the money argument. For example, 
the enforcement agencies at the border told Donald Trump, this is what we need. He asked them, what do we need? And they said, we need a dedicated obstacle on the border, a wall, wall system, whatever you want to call it. And I believe they estimated the, the cost of that about $20 billion. Now that sounds like an astronomical amount of money. In Washington politics, it's a rounding error. Let's be real. So your report talked about if we're to provide every immigration violator with counsel, as these groups would have us do, the, the cost is well into the billions. The, the, the Chuck Schumers and the Nancy Pelosi's at the time of that wall request cried poor and said, 20 billion is an outrageous amount of money. And yet, here they are facilitating these processes, which will far exceed that cost. Oh, it's crazy. Um, there's about two million, probably closer to two and a half million uh, cases at this point that are pending uh, before the immigration court. When I was an immigration judge, when I arrived new, they said, here's your docket. And I took a look at the docket, and it had 7,000 cases on it. I had been there for about, I don't know, three weeks when I got assigned a permanent document, uh, excuse me, permanent docket. 7,000 cases. I was booked out to like 2028, 20, six years ahead of when I arrived there. So this is the, the kind of workload that the immigration court is laboring under. and. There's re realistically, the way the immigration court is running now, no hope of getting through this. And what happens is when attorneys come in, the first thing they do is they ask for additional time. That delays the cases. They ask for additional hearings to deal with things like, you know, bond issues. A lot of times, even when there's no realistic expectation that the, the individual in proceedings is going to be granted bond. So... This costs more money because you have to have court staff present. You have to keep the light, the heat, the air conditioning, whatever on at the court. So you're expending more money that way. But then if you take a look and you think the average attorney uh, who is a court-appointed defense counsel in a criminal court these days makes anywhere between $75 and $150 an hour in you know, an average jurisdiction, places like Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, Lynn, Massachusetts, where I grew up, uh, you know, places like New York and L.A., they may well, even for, for court-appointed state work, be drawing a higher rate. So, uh, you know, if you figure the average hearing requires four or five, six hours of, you know, attorney time, including the preparation of the actual hearing, and multiply that by the average three hearings it takes to complete a case in the immigration court, and then multiply that again by the 2.5, 2.6 million backlogged cases, you're in the multi, multi-billions of dollars by the time you finish that calculation. And that's just for the average. That doesn't include the cases that, for whatever reason, take a significantly longer time. It also doesn't include the cases that take a shorter time, but there, there are relatively few of those. Um, but when you compare that to the cost of a permanent physical barrier on the border, how much savings do you get from a wall that keeps these folks from coming here in the first place? I mean, the beautiful thing about a wall is it has a gate in it, and the Border Patrol mans the gate, which means that only the people who want to get through the gate get through the gate. Then you're dealing with, okay, we, we have the time and the money to make reasonable decisions about who of these people should be admitted into the U.S. at first and then allowed to stay here. You can't do that 
when you're pursuing crazy programs like these and you've got somebody like Uncle Joe that has apparently decided the U.S. border no longer exists, anyone who shows up at the southern border with Mexico is going to be entitled to come into the United States. An obvious remedy that a lot of people would think of in terms of how do we stop this from happening in our community, get the current mayor, city council, district attorney out. Beyond that or short of that, is there anything citizens of these places can do, residents, to change this so that this isn't happening where they live? Well, yeah, certainly they can write to their legislators. They can, uh, you know, they can get involved with organizations like Early, um, and yeah, they can they can contact the, the public offices at ICE and tell ICE, hey, we'd like to have more enforcement in our communities. Um, but probably the most significant thing that they can do at this point is to to aid organizations like Early, uh, so that we can continue to to take these opportunities to expose these things to the public and to tell the public about them. For more information on this issue and other work conducted by Early, please visit our website at www.irli.org. That's early.org. There's additional information and places where you can support Early and its work on behalf of the citizens of the United States. <laughs>